If you would take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5 and find your way to verse 22, it is that time in our worship service to dig into the Word of God, and uh, it comes at such a great time in our worship service. I think after all the prayers and the great praises that have been given and rendered to our great God, it is... Uh, We've been prepared, I think, to listen to the Word now and have it minister to our souls, and I trust it will this morning. I have much to say about this fruit. We are actually beginning an, another fruit of the Spirit this morning. The uh, next one is patience in the lineup, and uh, there is much to say, so I'm, uh, I'm excited to get into it too. But we mustn't rush through patience. Oh, no. Patience is very important. In fact, patience, this fruit of the Spirit, stands out from the others in that it affects all of the others. I want you to think through this with me. Patience is a fruit in its own right. We'll see that as we make our way through this, but it also proves the rest of the fruit to be genuine. In other words, it puts them to the test. You see, you can love someone, for example, fruit of the Spirit, who is lovely. That's easy. But your enemy, well, that takes patience. You can rejoice in times of blessing, but in the midst of trial, that takes patience. And the same is true with being kind and good and faithful and gentle and exercising self-control. You need patience to practice those fruits, especially in contexts that are not conducive to practicing them. And more than this, patience allows you to perfect the fruit of the Spirit in your own soul. You learn through patience to exercise them all much better and with great aplomb. The English Puritan Thomas Goodwin elaborated on this very topic in his short treatise, Patience and its Perfect Work Under Sudden and Sore Trials. I love these titles that they have. This is an exposition of James Chapter 1, first five verses. And in it, in this, this treatise, he calls patience the eminent perfection of the Christian, and that he proves to be true, or that proves to be true, rather, in the, in, in the life of Christ. Now, listen to how he explains this. It, it, in his pre-incarnate state, when the Son was with the Father in heaven, God the Son never experienced suffering. Think about that. Never experienced suffering. And if he was to be our Savior, he would have to learn obedience in the context of suffering in the flesh. Had to. No question. The writer develops this important truth in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 to 9. Listen to the scripture. Although he was the Son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him. Now, that is an astounding insight. And Goodwin goes deeper. He points to what the Son accomplished in his earthly ministry, uh, as, well as, in his, uh, as well as being with God in heaven. He, he talks about his accomplishments in terms of active obedience. Now, by active, Goodwin means by what the Son, both in heaven as well as on the earth, what he did 
took the initiative to actually act out, right? He rejoiced in God the Father. He showed his delight in God's law. He demonstrated kindness, self-control, goodness. And the Son did show patience, of course, from heaven to all eternity. In, in Old Testament times, he did show patience. But there was an aspect of patience, you see, that he would not experience until his incarnation. That part belongs to the realm of the Son's passive obedience. And that is what the Son obediently endured at the hands of wicked men. He actively healed, actively taught, actively served, but he passively endured suffering for our sakes. He endured suffering... And enduring suffering is the other side of patience. The side that was not natural to the Son. There was no time or place in eternity where the Son would ever have experienced that side of patience. He had to take on flesh and dwell among us to experience it. Goodwin says, quote, For him to suffer who was the Son, and so to be patient in suffering, who was so great a person, this was to be learned as that which was improper for such a person as the Son. And yet, as I may say, this perfected the natural accomplishments of him. In other words, as the writer of Hebrews puts it in chapter 2, verse 10, for in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. We can say with certainty that Jesus was complete in all his redemptive work because he had patiently learned obedience through the context of suffering. Now that's why he could sympathize with our weaknesses and why he can bring us to glory as our Savior. Now, that might be clear enough. And if it is, then you know how profound this truth is. And, and I want to round it off, this amazing and profound truth, by stressing just one statement from Goodwin's quote that, you, that might have escaped your notice. He said, Yet, as I may say, this perfected the natural accomplishments of him. This refers to Jesus' learning obedience and suffering, which Jesus could only have experienced as a man on earth. And Goodwood says that this time of learning in suffering is what perfected all of Jesus' other active accomplishments. His love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and self-control and worship and service, everything was perfected by suffering, by patience in suffering. I would say that Goodwin is right. Patience is truly the eminent perfection of the Christian. It's what will mature the Christian and allow him to display all other godly virtues and spiritual fruits in the best possible light because patience tests them all in context of suffering. As we'll see, godly patience speaks to our ability in Christ to endure suffering in order to live a life of obedience. Now, we all need to learn obedience in suffering, and we need patience to do that. 
Someone said somewhere in some blog I read, patience makes perfect. And there's a lot of truth to that. Wow, is patience really that important? Yes, it is. I would say that it is one of the most comprehensive words that captures the essence of the Christian faith. It's right up there with love, thankfulness, and contriteness. The flip side of this is just as profound, and it should unsettle us. Impatience is sin. And if a Christian is characterized by it, he will read terrible consequences. Impatient Christians can ruin a church. James cautions in, in, in his epistle, chapter 1, verse 19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, I want you to know that the Old Testament brings this out in a few different ways. I'm an Old Testament guy, so we're going to start there. And one uh, of the ways in, in which it brings this out is to speak against being rash. Being rash. Now, Old Testament has a lot to say about rashes, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being rash. Being rash is to be impatient. A rash person is someone who doesn't give careful consideration to the possible consequences of his actions. Being rash is so offensive to God, then, that he addresses it in Leviticus chapter 5. Listen to verses 4 to 6. If someone swears rashly to do what is good or evil, concerning everything a person may speak rashly in an oath, without being aware of it, but later recognizes it, he incurs guilt in such an instance. If someone incurs guilt... In one of these cases, he is to confess that he has committed that sin. He must bring his penalty for guilt to the, for the sin that he has committed to the Lord, a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make an atonement on behalf for his sin. Now, we all remember, I think, most of us anyway, the famous rash vow of Jephthah. Remember Jephthah, who wanted victory over the Ammonites so badly that he vowed to God to sacrifice the first thing that came out of his house to greet him when he came home from victory. Whatever comes to, uh, out the doors of my house, Jephthah said, to meet me, O Lord, when I return safely from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Oh, that sounds so good, doesn't it? He hadn't considered that his daughter might be the first one out, and she was. Rash vows were not the only way to demonstrate impatience. Abraham. Abraham, for example, he was motivated by God's vow to him as a son of, uh, for a son of promise. That's what God vowed to Abraham. Now, God always keeps his promises. But an older man... With no children, you can imagine how precious this promise had become to Abraham and how impatient he eventually grew when there was no son forthcoming. And when the time was getting on, he took it upon himself to have a child with his handmaid. But that would not be the child of promise. Not only that, but there were negative consequences that came from his impatient act with his handmaid that we even witness today, don't we? Then there was Saul. We read in 1 Samuel 13 that Saul 
was with his troops waiting for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice to God and to give God's approval to fight. And Saul's uh, patience grew thin. And when Samuel didn't show, well, the troops got restless and started to leave. Desperate, Saul overstepped his bounds and he makes a sacrifice himself. And when Samuel finally came, we read in, read in verses 11 to 13, Samuel asked, what have you done? Saul answered, well, well I, I saw that the troops were deserting and, and you didn't come with, within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at, at Michmash. I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal and I, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I worked up the courage to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said, you have been foolish. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God that your God gave you. Were the consequences of this sinful, what were the consequences of this sinful impatience? Listen to Samuel's sobering words that follow. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Did it have to come to this? Would Saul lose his kingdom over this rash event? Yes, he would. But he meant well. I mean, his troops were getting restless. Morale was waning. He needed the Lord's confirmation through sacrifice. What else was he supposed to do? Wait. Wait for God's word through the prophet, regardless of what happens. He may have meant well, but he went outside the Lord's ordained parameters to seek divine approval. He was impatient. And that brings me to mention something about impatience that is so dangerous, beloved. Jephthah, Abraham, and Saul all committed sinful acts that seemed to be backed by good intentions. So you go and read through the passages and you'll see. Jephthah wanted holy victory. And Abraham wanted his son of promise to be a great nation. And Saul, Saul wanted God's answer to prayer. Those are all good things to want. But God has ordained means and timing for us to learn these things. And when we want to see God's goals fulfilled so badly, listen very carefully, when the benefits of the faith become more important than pleasing God himself, we will necessarily go outside God's ordained means and we will look to other means as well as work on our own time to get them. Like Saul, we work up the courage to take measures into our own hands. And that, by the way, is the definition of serving God on your own strength. And that's also when we reap the terrible consequences of being impatient. Now, in our impatience in fighting the good fight or anticipating the fulfillment of God's covenant, covenant promises or waiting God on God's answer to our prayers might not be as audacious as it was in the life of Jephthah and Abraham and Saul. Those were key figures. They were public figures and... And their impatience was, uh, was, I think, magnified all the more in public. 
In fact, our impatience with God is not as audacious. It's more subtle, but I assure you it is just as as sinful and complete with terrible consequences. I'll prove this to you right now. If you love the Lord, you're probably prepared to tell anyone who asks about your faith that you would do anything to please Christ. I'll do whatever it takes to please Christ. Yes, I would like to think, I'd like to believe that that's me. Well, be careful here. Anything? If, you, if, if, if it would please the Lord for you to be a good parent to your kids, are you willing to do anything to achieve that? How about rob a bank? Would, you li- would lying be part of your strategy? After all, it's for a, good, a godly end. We could ask the same question about Christian spouses and employees and citizens of this country. What are you prepared to do to achieve a godly end in these and all areas of your life? That's a fair question. It mustn't be anything, or else we will resort to means that lay outside the scope of Scripture. We mustn't be so hard on Jephthah. Learn a lesson from him but be careful to judge him so harshly. Like him, it's easy to be overzealous for a godly end and want it so badly that we become impatient for it, and then we employ sinful means to obtain it. And that's even a deceptive thing, because we baptize those sinful means into a a spiritual way of doing things. What should I say then? Well, you should say, I'll do whatever God allows me to do to achieve this. Now, I'm not being trite. This is important stuff. Whatever the Bible says I can do to see it done, I will do, but nothing more. I'm not going to add or take away from the Bible. And that brings us back to impatience. What we also gather from the examples of Jephthah and Abraham and Saul is that impatience is really about control. If you want to know about what impatience is the essence of it, it's about control, as so many things in life are. Control. I want it, I want it now, and I will do whatever it takes to get it. It's an outgrowth, you see, of Satan's lie in Genesis 3, the lie that Paul references in Romans chapter 1, which is that we can live a perfect life without God in it, telling us what to do, how to do it, and when. We can be our own gods. The entire world operates on that lie. And even though it no longer operates as a major principle in our lives as Christians, traces of it remain in our flesh in habit form. Something we we need to put off and put on, in its place, a humble submission to God's way of doing things. We need to put on patience. We also note that impatience is an act of sheer idolatry. Sheer idolatry. It's not only about control, it's about idolatry. What do you mean? Well, when godly goals are in our sights, We think that justifies our ungodly means to obtain them. But the ends don't justify the means, beloved. And unbiblical and sinful means point to a desire for something other than pleasing Christ 
in that moment. Samuel once told Saul on another occasion when Saul blatantly disobeyed God and sought to cover his sin by explaining it away as an act of worship that obedience is better than sacrifice. When Christians want something bad enough, even a godly pursuit, obedient children, submissive wife, a good reputation with those outside the church, and they want it more than they want to please Christ in the pursuit. They have reached the place where they, where they worship something other than Christ. The godly pursuit becomes the more important, all more, the, the more important to them than, and more important even than God himself. And that, beloved, is idolatry. So impatience is, is not only about control, it's about idolatry. But I would go further. I would also point out to you the fact that our biblic- in our biblical examples, they reveal that impatience amounts to a lack of trust in God, in God's means and in his timing. Now, we don't trust that, m- that his means are comprehensive enough, adequate enough, nor is his timing impeccable enough. As you're taking all of this in, I may be inclined to, you may be inclined to agree with me when I say that that what Christians find so difficult, in fact, perhaps the most difficult, certainly more difficult than even loving an enemy, is waiting on God. Waiting on God. Especially when the waiting involves suffering. Enduring long, painful seasons of trial where the dark cloud seems to just hover over us and there's no end in sight. This is why patience has earned its rightful place as one of few comprehensive terms that captures the essence of the true faith. It's only in God's character-building crucible of testing do we show our true colors. Whether we are willing to wait on God's timing for relief, obey his word that will guide us aptly through, not around, not under, not over, but through to the end, and depend on the Holy Spirit to minister to us in the thick of our suffering as he did to our Lord when he was in Gethsemane. I want to direct your attention to Psalm 13 just for a moment. If you hold your place in Galatians and find your way over to Psalm 13, it, it is a very brief psalm. David laments. David laments that God has not answered him in such a long time. Psalm 13, he asks a series of rhetorical questions right at the beginning that are meant here simply to emphasize how much he agonized over God's supposed inactivity in his life during this time. And by activity, I mean that God has not come to deliver him yet. So he says in verses 1 and 2, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It felt as if God had forgotten him because he had been suffering in this context for so long. Maybe you can relate to David. Reference to God hiding his face is a figure of speech that refers to God's inactivity. When God shows his face, he acts. When he hides his face, he's silent. 
Now, don't think that David was not tempted to devise his own plans for deliverance, maybe speed things up a bit. Listen to his words in verse 2. How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? In the deafening silence of God's inactivity, David seems to vacillate between waiting on God and taking matters into his own hands. He ponders them, adds new ideas, returns perhaps to some old ones, but I want you to understand that he never acts on them, thankfully. We're led to believe that David actually talks himself out of going outside of God's will to find relief, and he remains fixed on God's perfect plan for him, which includes suffering. The great thing about this psalm is that it is a lament psalm, which always, lament psalms always conclude in confidence, a note of confidence. David resorts to God's means Instead of bringing about God's deliverance, he cries out to the Lord in prayer about his frustrating and pathetic situation. He then petitions God for deliverance, giving him reasons why. And then after that, he rests completely in the knowledge that his covenant God will act decisively and at the most appropriate time. He has no question, fully convinced. His newfound confidence becomes evident in the fact that his entire tone in the psalm changes. He goes from being frantic and unsettled to confident and patiently waiting. And while he waits, get this, he rehearses the praise that he will give to God in the temple upon his deliverance. Rehearses his praise in the midst of the trial. Hasn't been delivered yet. What confidence is that? Well, if I have convinced you of just how eminent patience is in our lives and the great need that we have to perfect it in our Christian walk, then it is incumbent upon us to know biblical patience well. God defines patience, for he is a patient God. So those of us who are born again, born of God, have the, have the Holy Spirit in us and have been given a new nature that will express those kinds of attributes that God passes on to us, like patience. We need to understand, then, that patience is part of the new nature of the born-again believer. All of us who know Christ as Lord and Savior have been given this fruit. We inherit it from our Heavenly Father. So if God is patient and he bears sons after his own nature, then they too will patiently endure after the manner of their Heavenly Father. Now remember, these fruits are sourced in God, the Holy Spirit, who is in us. So following this line of argument, if we're going to practice patience in a way that faithfully and accurately represents our God, then we need to know God's patience. The Bible is replete with references to it, and as we look at them, we might distinguish at least four aspects. I want to finish our time out just referring to four aspects of God's peace, okay? And from that, we will put together a working definition. Four aspects of God's peace. Number one, God's patient, I'm sorry, 
patience. I, I think I said peace. God's patience has a future aspect to it. That's number one. It has a future aspect to it. There's no question from various biblical texts that God's patience is linked with his mercy and compassion, which temporarily stays his hand of well-deserved judgment on wrongdoers. Moses, for example, tells us in Exodus 34, 6, when the Lord passed by Moses, he claimed that he is, that is God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger. Slow to anger translates the Hebrew word here for patience, as it does in Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Both Psalm 103.8 and 145.8 follow this pattern and even use identical language. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. So God's patience with wrongdoers works out practically in that he is slow to judge them. Slow to execute wrath on them. Do you see that? This doesn't mean, of course, that he doesn't take their sin seriously or hold them accountable. The same Moses who wrote Exodus 34.6 also wrote Numbers 14.18. Excuse me. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in mercy, forgiving wrongdoing and violation of his law. But he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. So while God is patient with offenders, he still holds them accountable for their guilt and will, at a future point, judge them. See the future element that's built into God's patience? Can you see it? It's an eschatological element to divine patience, if you want to be theological about it. Really what we're saying is that patience has an end-time aspect to it. It waits for a better time. It sees a better time than the present for meeting out proper justice. But why the lag time? God's holy and he has every right to bring judgment on offenders now. So why doesn't he? Well, one good reason he waits is so that offenders may have time to consider their sin and repent. That's why the Old Testament references to God's patience often couples it with compassion and mercy. Listen to Joel 2.13. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Joel calls for repentance before God judges. I cannot help but get a, a little practical for a moment and say, That God's long-suffering, his willingness to endure rebellious rejection from people, is an aspect of God's patience that we should emphasize when calling wayward believers to repent and when we evangelize the lost. I mean, the Bible does. Paul warns of hypocritical judging in Romans chapter 2, that is, judging others while being guilty of the very same thing that you're judging them for. Repent, he says, while there is time, because there's time. 
Listen to verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? There's time. Repent. Change. Hurry. We have time, but we don't know how long. In his evangelistic message to the unbelieving audience in Athens, Paul explains God's patience to them that they might consider his gospel and repent. Acts 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. That is Christ. The word overlooked in this context does not mean that God excuses sin. Rather, he simply reserves judgment for a future time. It's clear that God stays immediate judgment to give unbelievers more opportunity to hear the word preached, experience his love through the dealings with Christians and his church who give physical aid and and relief cold glass of water and we should urge believers to repent and not delay God's patience may prolong the inevitable yes giving opportunity for unsaved people to witness more proof of Christ and his claims yes but God's patience also puts those who refuse to repent in a in a position where they store up more wrath for themselves and condemnation Oh, yes. In Romans 2.4, which we looked at a moment ago, Paul finishes his thought in verses 5 and 6, which say, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Give God's patience careful consideration. That's what we're saying. Don't treat it so lightly. It's for your benefit. Repent rather than store up wrath for yourself, which is sure to come. Anyone with an unbelieving heart out there should take these words to heart. The longer a person ignores God's patience, he potentially stores up more wrath for himself at the end of time. Now, Now is the appointed time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so we tell people to repent of their sin and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ now. Don't delay. They should ask God for a heart of faith and a willingness to obey the gospel. I might also say that squandering this opportunity of God's patience can also lead to a hard heart. I want you to think about this one. I have spoken to so many non-Christians who are what we might say very close to the kingdom, you know, from a human point of view. They're just on the verge of falling into the kingdom, of believing. They're so close, so close in trusting Christ, but they delay. And their thinking is, well, there's always time to do that later. Uh, I'll just do it later. And from what we know from the book of Hebrews, a person can never be sure that as time passes, he won't actually develop a hard heart. There is a good reason why we find the oft-repeated refrain in Hebrews to listen to God's voice and repent. 
Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 15. Listen to the sobering words. Take care, brothers and sisters, that there will not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another every day, as long as it is still called day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we keep the, keep the beginning of our commitment firm until the end, while it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me. It's funny, somewhat, somewhat odd that patience and urgency would run together here, but they do. God is patient. He has given you time. But be quick about exercising faith in this time. So God's patience has a future aspect to it. He relates to people and events in a way that anticipates a future response. An appointed time where he will respond justly to sin and rejection and rebellion. A time, at that time doesn't have to be at the end of the age, by the way, as it is in Acts 17. For some it could be in the near or distant future on earth. But the point is that he, his, patience, his patient response is not immediate. Um, or his, his judgment, rather, is not immediate. His patience stays it. He suffers wrong done to him without anger or taking immediate revenge so as to give the sinner time to repent. That's number one. Number two, there is an aspect of God's patience that communicates his glory. Patience communicates God's glory. How does it do that? Well, we find an interesting idea in Romans 9 regarding the ultimate goal of God's patience. Paul explains in verses 22 to 24 that there is another reason, in fact, in fact the grandest reason of all, why God strives long and hard with hard-hearted sinners of the world who refuse to repent, and it is to make the riches of his glory known to the church. To make the riches of his glory known to the elect. Here's what Paul says, Romans 9, 22 to 24. And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endure with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us? the ones he also called? Rhetorical question. What's Paul saying? Objects of wrath prepared for destruction is shorthand for hard-hearted sinners or unbelievers whose condemnation is sure. Only God knows that. Since that is the case, God demonstrates his wrath and power to them in undeniable ways, but not all at once since God still exercises patience in this case, so that he might impress the church with his glory. This is such a wonderful, a wonderful principle. Let me give you a biblical illustration of this. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, as we know, but he didn't pour out his wrath upon Pharaoh all at once, right? No, God was patient in his dealings with Pharaoh in Egypt, sending one plague after another, after another, after another. 
And he did this in order to display his glory to the church, to the elect. He displayed his glory in the land of Goshen. God did tell Moses that Egypt will know God, and so they did know him. The world, in fact, came to know God's great reputation after God destroyed the army of Egypt. But Israel would witness this and be the more affected by it, which is why God repeatedly refers to the fact that he brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand when he wants to engender their loyalty. So we're saying that there is an aspect of God's patience that communicates his glory. When when patience is exercised, it should communicate an aspect of his glory. More on that later. Number three, there is an aspect of God's patience that also imparts grace to his redeemed own. It imparts grace. So in the same Romans passage, we see that God's patience in staying his immediate hand of full judgment on hardened sinners, Pharaoh, is to give grace to God's elect, not only to impress them with his glory, but to give them grace. We mentioned verse 23 as the objects of God's mercy predestined for glory when we see opponents of the faith who are hardened to it, reaping the natural consequences of their sinful lifestyle as God has ordained, we appreciate all the more the blessing that comes with being right with God. We say, I'm, sh- I'm sure glad that I know God, that I know him personally, that I am part of his people, Now, we might not be immune to the same harsh realities of life, of course, but we have our covenant God's promise to keep us and to be gracious to us. We see this in God's dealing with Pharaoh. God wanted to make known the riches of his glory to his people, Israel, and to extend grace to them. So, at the same time God demonstrated his wrath and power against Pharaoh, he showed his people unmistakable mercy that they may experience the riches of his glory. We read several times in the Exodus account that Moses uh, noticed only all too well that none of the plagues fell in the land of Goshen, where Israel lived. Huh. And the enduring principle here is that God always desires to display his glory to the world as he confounds it, but in a way that will show mercy to his redeemed own. God displays of glory threatens his enemies, but gives hope to his covenant people. Number four, and finally, there is, is, as a rule, an aspect of God's patience that operates particularly in grievous contexts. In grievous contexts, as a rule. There are exceptions to this. I'm saying as a rule, God's patience operates particularly in grievous contexts contexts. What I mean by that is this. God exercises his patience usually and mostly in contexts where he is dealing with the sin, persecution, rebelliousness, or indifference of both saved and unsaved people. Now think about that for a moment. In the passage we read, Acts and Romans, God is dealing with salvation, which is the saving of men and women from sin. Sin is a grievous thing to God. 
He saves his enemies that are at war with him because, because enmity with God is a grievous thing to him. He also brings his people to church through difficult times for his glory and their good, times that include persecution. And God is grieved when the world persecutes his church. He takes it personally. In all of these situations, we believe that it would be totally natural and appropriate for God to judge immediately. But he surprises us with his patience because he is a compassionate, merciful, forgiving God. The Greek word in our text, Galatians 5.22, for patience, has the idea of long-suffering in the context of persecution and provocation. People may provoke God, but God remains patient. So let me just say, as we conclude, this is God's patience, kind of giving you a thumbnail sketch, which now puts us in a position where we can come up with sort of a working definition that we're going to use to help us understand how we practice patience. We do that next time. But God's patience, it's not reactive, it's proactive. And for us then, in light of how God exercises patience in these four areas, for us, we could say that patience, biblical patience, assesses the situation from a future perspective in a way that leaves room for the justice of God. And it brings glory to God and it imparts the grace of God and all of this in particularly grievous times where it is perfected. So a sound definition of biblical patience must be built on what we know then to be true of God's patience. And I would say in other words this that godly patience allows us to endure grievous situations joyfully in a way that brings glory to God and gives grace to our neighbor because we rest confidently in God's future justice. That's biblical patience. And it's rich. And it's powerful. And it's transforming. And it's reviving. And we need to know it better. And we will next time. Father, we thank you for this time together. Oh, God, we do pray that as we leave this place and through the week, you will, you will bring to our remembrance this very awesome fruit of the Spirit that you yourself epitomize godly and biblical patience. We can see how it operates in the way you deal with your people. And next time we look forward to seeing how it operated in Jesus' life and how it must be operational in ours and what that might look like. And until then, oh God, we pray that you will sustain us, that you will encourage us with this truth from Galatians 5.22 from what we've heard from your word today on patience, and that we may stay the course until then for your honor, for your glory, and for the benefit of your church. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.